Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1. Looking this evening at verse 24. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Great God, abide with us now in the reading and preaching of your word and manifest the glory of your grace in the salvation of sinners and the conversion and upbuilding of the saints. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We come now to the body of the letter to the Colossians. In a nutshell, the main section of Colossians is a call to maturity in Christ. Colossians is all about Christ, how He is all-sufficient, how we do not need to add to Him, but we instead draw from Him for all of life and godliness. As Paul continues to show us the all-sufficiency of Christ, he, calls us, he, he does so by calling us to get rid of all that is not Christ and to live out of the fullness of all of Christ's benefits. Here in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul begins the body of his letter, we could say, by using himself as an example of what the process of maturing in Christ looks like. I'm going to focus now on Paul's mysterious and perhaps for that reason widely neglected statement here in verse 24 on the distinct yet inseparable joining together of the suffering of believers with the suffering of Christ himself. When the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ by faith, we receive all of Christ and all of His benefits, whether it's justification, adoption, sanctification, or other benefits which accompany them, such as assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, or perseverance to the end. We partake of the perfect redemption that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in union with Him. That is basic but glorious Reformed Catechism theology. But Paul takes us deeper here. The believer in union with Christ receives grace for sin, praise God for this. What Paul shows us here in verse 24 is that the believer in union with Christ receives grace for suffering as well. Not only does union with Christ change our standing with God from one of wrath and enmity to one of grace and friendship, Union with Christ also changes our experience of the miseries of living in a sin-cursed world awaiting the return of Christ in glory. There is something gloriously different about the way believers united to Jesus Christ by faith go through hardship, whether great or small. We'll consider this in two basic points. First, we'll look at union with Christ, union with Christ broadly. When we speak of union with Christ, we're referring to the many times in the New Testament when it speaks of being 
in Christ. In Christ or with Christ, those prepositions bring us into the Bible's striking teaching of union with Christ. Paul has referred to this already in Colossians. Look up at chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul is addressing the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. He doesn't say there, the saints and faithful brothers who follow Christ or who believe in Christ or who worship Christ, rather those who are in Christ. Look at the end of verse 13 in chapter 1. Believers are in the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption. There is no redemption without a redeemer. Redemption is in Christ and in His kingdom. And as a preview of things to come, turn over to chapter 3. Notice some of the striking statements about the believer's union with Christ in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. Or verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So can you already see from this brief survey that being a Christian is more glorious than believing in or following or worshiping Christ as good and necessary as those things are? Being a Christian means being joined to, life to life, person to person, to Christ himself. Listen to the definition given in Westminster Larger Catechism 66. What is that union which the elect have with Christ? The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably, joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. Did you hear those four adver- adverbs, those four descriptions in that answer? Believers are joined to Jesus Christ spiritually, mystically, really, and inseparably. Think about those four things briefly. First, believers are joined to Christ spiritually. We are joined to Christ, capital S, spiritually, by the work of the Holy Spirit. John 6, 63, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life, just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the formless void to bring about life in the first creation, so also the Holy Spirit joins His people to Jesus Christ to bring about new life in a work of new creation. Secondly, believers are joined to Christ mystically. Now, there is lots of bad theology and practice that goes under the name of mysticism, But when we say, when our standards say that we are joined to Christ mystically, we simply mean that it is mysterious and full of glory. The life-to-life fellowship between Christ and the Christian is incomprehensible, which is perhaps why the larger catechism hastens to add, thirdly, believers are joined to Christ really. Even though you and I cannot comprehend and perfectly articulate what it means to be joined to Christ, we are nevertheless really and truly joined to Him. Even though believers may seldom feel that they are joined to Jesus Christ, union with Christ is not a metaphor or a figure of speech. It is true person-to-person fellowship, whether we feel like it or not. And fourthly, believers are joined to Christ inseparably. To reference a, an analogy, 
Husband and wife, in a certain sense, are united to each other, but the believer's union with Christ transcends marital union in part because it cannot be severed by anything in all creation. Once joined to Christ, Christ cannot lose the Christian, and the Christian cannot lose Christ. This is what Paul is talking about here in verse 24, this spiritual, mystical, real, inseparable union with Jesus Christ. Notice how he begins back in chapter 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, speaking of his own personal sufferings, but notice how he continues. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now speaking of Christ's own personal sufferings. So which is it? Is Paul talking about his own sufferings or Christ's sufferings? In a real sense, the answer is yes. Paul joins together his own experience of suffering with Christ's experience of suffering. How can Paul do that? Because you cannot, for even a nanosecond, contemplate the Christian apart from or in isolation from Christ. Paul cannot even mention his sufferings here without also bringing up the sufferings of Christ. Because of the spiritual, mystical, real, and inseparable union he has with Christ, Paul speaks of his own sufferings along with Christ's sufferings in the same breath. Somehow, some way, the believer's experience of suffering is a display of his union with Christ. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, chapter 26, paragraph 1. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Again, it says union with Christ gives us fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. Colossians 1.24 shows this wonderful, mysterious unity of the suffering of Christians with the suffering of Christ himself. Christ now, Christ as Paul writes this, Christ now is not suffering any longer. He has been exalted to glory. So we are talking here about the past historical sufferings of Jesus Christ, his humiliation from birth to death 2,000 years ago. That suffering, the sufferings of Christ 2,000 years ago, and the sufferings of his body, the church, form one unit. Why? Because the church is united with Christ even in suffering. Listen to how John Calvin explains this. Christ distinguishes us by this honor that he accounts and makes our afflictions his own. Far from separating us from Christ, the suffering of believers proves that we are united to him even in his past sufferings. That's union with Christ as an overview. Secondly, we'll spend more time here, union with Christ in suffering. Union with Christ in suffering. So all of this points up another characteristic we could add in addition to what the larger catechism gives us of what union with Christ is. As Paul brings together the sufferings of Christ with the sufferings of believers, this shows us something else about the nature of union with Christ. It is this, union with Christ is a transforming 
and conforming union, a transforming and conforming union. That gets at the language Paul uses here in Colossians 1.24, how he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That word he uses there for filling up points to, at the very least, personal transformation. Something happens to a believer in the midst of suffering. Something happens to him or her personally. In union with Christ, our sufferings are making us like Christ. As the potter molds the clay, as the goldsmith puts the gold into the oven to purify it and remove the dross, in a similar way, our sufferings in union with Christ transform us and make us more like Him. But this is not merely a personal change, though it is that, a personal timeless change. Rather, this personal transformation also inherently has a time reference. This is also a historical issue. Just as the life of Christ was one of suffering unto glory, so also the life of the Christian is one of suffering unto glory as well. The life of the church follows the same historical pattern of the life of Christ himself. Existence in this age because it is a sin-cursed age, a, the present evil age, as Paul calls it elsewhere. Existence here must be one of suffering and cross-bearing, whether for Christ or for the Christian. What's really amazing is that the sufferings of Christ led somewhere. They led to glory. And that is why our sufferings are also leading somewhere. Just as Christ suffered unto glory, our sufferings in union with Christ are making us like Him and are preparing us for glory with Him. Now, at this point, we should answer an understandable question. When Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, is he saying that there is something lacking in Christ's work? Well, if you just look back a few verses to verse 19, in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and I think Paul is talking there about a redemptive fullness, it would be very strange if Paul made a comment about the insufficiency of Christ after just mentioning his all-sufficiency. In a letter that is all about the sufficiency of Christ in the face of Jewish and pagan attempts to add to his work, it would make little sense for Paul to agree with that unbelieving testimony. So very clearly, no, Paul is not saying that Christ's work falls short in some sense, that you and I need to supplement it by our sufferings in order to be saved. While it is mysterious that Paul would use this language of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, I think it's not hard to see that for Paul and for all believers, the lack is on the side of the Christian, not on the side of Christ. The sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of Christians while united in this verse, are still different nonetheless. Think of, the, of some of the differences. Christ suffered for us. We suffer in and with Him. Christ suffered as our Redeemer. We suffer in Him as redeemed. Christ's sufferings are atoning. Our sufferings are sanctifying because of His atoning work. We do need to appreciate, though, that Paul does not highlight the dissimilarity between the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of Christians here, he rather highlights their unity. As we said earlier, 
both aspects in view. The sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of Christians are displayed by Paul here as forming one thing, one unit. How do we make sense of this? John Murray, in another context, I think explains it best. There is no sharing in Christ's glory unless there is sharing in His sufferings. Sufferings and then glory was the order appointed for Christ Himself. It could not have been otherwise. The same order applies to those who are heirs with Him. Believers do not contribute to the accomplishment of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. Nowhere are their sufferings represented as having such virtue. The Lord laid His people's iniquities upon Christ alone, and in Him alone did God reconcile the world to Himself. Christ alone redeemed us by His blood. Nevertheless, believers are regarded as filling up the total number of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and the glorification of the whole body of Christ. Let me reread that last sentence. Nevertheless, believers are regarded as filling up the total number of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and the glorification of the whole body of Christ. Think about what Murray is saying. What is a basic reason that Christ does not return sooner? Because we, are, we who are in Christ have not suffered enough and have not been prepared enough for glory. Earthly suffering is preparation for heavenly bliss. And in God's mysterious ordering of these things, there is a fixed number, one that we cannot have access to or try to rush along, a fixed number of sufferings requisite to heavenly glory. In a real sense, the more the gold stays in the furnace, the closer it gets to being purified and ready for display. Again, our Savior suffered unto glory, and we, in union with our Savior, suffer unto glory. The pattern of the church's life matches the pattern of Christ's life. Suffering must precede glory, but also glory will manifest as the outcome of, as the endpoint of suffering. So to return to our question, is there a deficiency in Christ's suffering that you and I need to supplement? Again, no. Union with Christ in suffering means that our sufferings are leading us to glory. Think of how we see this elsewhere in Scripture. Think of Acts 14.22. Paul and Barnabas were ministering and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is the pathway to glory. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So not only is suffering the pathway to glory, more than that, suffering is the preparation for glory. Notice also there in Romans 8, Paul does not say, if we suffer now, we will be glorified one day, although that's true. But what Paul says there in Romans 8 is much more personal. 
He says, rather, if we suffer with Christ, then we shall also be glorified with Christ. Our sufferings in this age are as much with Christ as our glory in the age to come will be with Christ, both at personal joining to Him. Christ has joined Himself to us, and He has joined us to Himself, and that union is displayed in our sufferings. 2 Corinthians 1.5, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson's comment on this verse. In fellowship with Christ by the Spirit, an overflow of His sufferings diffuses into our lives. We are not justified by such suffering. Our sufferings are not atoning, but they conform us more and more to Christ. Thus, what is lacking in our fellowship in the sufferings of Christ is progressively brought to completion. Again, suffering makes us like Christ in preparation for glory with Christ. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. There, Paul says that suffering for the sake of Christ is as much a given of the Christian life as faith in Christ is. Walking by faith in this age is inherently a walking that daily carries the cross as we follow the same historical pattern of the life of Jesus Himself. Just as Jesus Himself did not enter exaltation until He was first humiliated, so also we in union with Christ will not be glorified with Him until we first suffer with Him. That historical pattern is baked into life in covenant with God, suffering unto glory. Listen to how Herman Ritterboss puts it. All of life is bound to Christ, for he too was crucified out of weakness, but he lives out of the power of God. It is this solidarity with Christ in which the believer learns to understand the present life in its deepest significance, which already in this life makes itself felt as a source of strength and constitutes the evidence of the coming glory. Later in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where Paul desires nothing more than to know Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul there emphasizes how suffering displays His union with Christ. Christian suffering the fellowship of Christ's sufferings is much broader than we tend to think. Christian suffering is not just about doing ministry things, undergoing persecution as a missionary, being mocked for sharing the gospel, though that is involved. Christian suffering is not just about occasional intense hardships that we arbitrarily deem real suffering. Death of a loved one, cancer diagnosis, marital infidelity, car accident, losing a job, inability to pay the bills, those such things are involved. Christian suffering means you are living for Christ in conscious dependence upon Him while you still exist in this sin-cursed world experiencing all of its miseries. Experiencing the miseries of this life 
was part of Christ's suffering. The Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms mention various aspects of Christ's suffering, His humiliation, such as undergoing the miseries of this life, conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities in his flesh. Now, which of those things is is not true of you? We experience all of these things as well. We are continually undergoing the miseries of this life, continually conflicting with the indignities of the world and temptations of Satan, and continually aware of our frailty and infirmity. But here's the difference. All these things Christ suffered for us, and all these things we suffer with him. You are still living in a fallen world where Satan is at work, where sin and its consequences are seen everywhere, and where the enemies of Christ are out to destroy those who belong to him. Romans 8, Paul mentions how all of creation is in bondage to corruption, groaning for redemption. We groan with it as well. Things are not the way they should be. Things don't work correctly. This is a world of death and decay, weakness and futility. And no amount of the church's effort will do anything to Christianize this age. We still experience the miseries of this life, the infirmities of our flesh and the temptations of Satan. Emphasizing that the fellowship of Christ's sufferings is not a handful of certain things for the believer, rather the believer's entire existence in this age, Richard Gaffin makes this point. The sufferings of Christ are the Christian's involvement in the sufferings of the present time, Romans 8, 18, as the time of comprehensive subjection of the entire creation to futility and frustration, to decay and pervasive debilitating weakness. As long as we're living in this sin-cursed world, God uses our suffering, any hardship, to prepare us for glory. Again, Richard Gaffin, where existence in creation, under the curse on sin and in the mortal body, is not simply born stoically or in some other self-centered, rebellious way, but born for Christ and lived in His service, there, comprehensively, is the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Think about what he's saying. Think in particular about some of the self-centered, rebellious ways he mentioned, the ways we go through and respond to hardship. Just grin and bear it, pretending everything is fine. It is what it is. Or the opposite extreme, unfiltered, cathartic release to anyone and everyone who will listen. How quickly and easily, how intuitively we go inward to ourselves or outward to others, but not to Christ. It is only in conscious dependence upon Christ that our sufferings make us like Him. In all of our sufferings, great and small, let us grow, grow in going to Christ, depending upon Him in the midst of hardship, and more and more long for His power to be manifest in our weakness. Christ Himself had no fellowship in his sufferings. Dopey, thick-headed disciples constantly misunderstanding his teaching, an unjust trial, and his father abandoning him for bearing our sin upon the cross. Before the believer, there is fellowship in suffering, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. 
there is participation in the life and power of our Savior, a fellowship in which His power is made perfect in our weakness. His limitless power is manifest through our pervasive and extreme weakness, to quote Richard Gaffin one last time. So I conclude with two brief points. First, let me address the unbeliever, you who do not know the Lord Jesus. It is only as you are joined to Jesus Christ, resting upon him alone, that your suffering is unto glory. Remember what we heard from Philippians 3, how believers are surrounded by resurrection. Resurrection life, fellowship of his sufferings, conformed to his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection life on the inside now is manifest in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and will terminate in life bodily raised in the new heavens and new earth. But for you, for the unbeliever, your suffering is radically different. You suffer alone, not with Christ. You suffer as one joined to the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of God. Your suffering is death unto death, not life unto life. Your suffering is the opposite of what we see here in Colossians. You are filling up what is lacking in your condemnation. Your suffering is leading you toward and will terminate in everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. In other words, Christians suffer unto glory, but you suffer unto suffering. It need not be so. Come to Jesus Christ, receive of his fullness. Instead of earthly miseries unto hellfire, your sufferings will make you like Christ and prepare you for heavenly glory with Christ. Secondly, let me address the believer. Believer, get rid of all misunderstanding. If you think that these are abstract, impractical reflections that should be relegated to the darkest corners of the academy, remember this. The Apostle Paul has written these things to the church, not from his study or from his living room, but from his imprisonment. These are of utmost great practical significance for the church. I am in no way saying that having mere awareness, intellectual recognition of what we have considered now (coughs) to be a magic formula that will make suffering go away or feel good, but we are saying that this spiritual, mystical, real, and inseparable union we have with Christ should change the way we go through suffering And it should ever keep in our view that suffering is leading us somewhere, leading us to glory. In his own way, the Apostle James tells about the same existential value of Christian suffering that Paul experienced. Turn with me to to James chapter 1. As James opens his letter, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
comparing Paul and James on this point, <coughs> excuse me, on Christian suffering, when you and I fully fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, we will be perfect and complete, lacking in, no- <coughs> in nothing. Christ will be formed in us. We will attain maturity. We will attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We will be conformed to His, Im- to his image. This age of suffering and misery will have served its God-given purpose and come to its end. And the age to come, the age of heavenly glory, will be fully and visibly manifested and will be enjoyed by all who are united to Jesus Christ. As you depend upon Christ in hardship, as you suffer unto Him in conscious dependence upon Him and for His glory, it is in these ways that your suffering is given a most glorious value. You suffer with Christ, not alone. You suffer unto glory, not unto condemnation. Your suffering is personal transformation into the image of the glory of the Lord, not a meaningless experience. And your suffering in this age prepares you for and gets you closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this moment, you and I lack the fullness of Christ and his benefits, and we need him applied to us more and more. Going through the miseries of this life is one way you and I experience that transforming power of union with Jesus Christ. In God's incomprehensible wisdom, He has so bound us to Christ, He has so bound our sufferings with the sufferings of Christ, that whatever hardship we experience in dependence upon Christ is a hardship that is making us like Him and preparing us for His glorious return. So don't miss out on the fullness of Christ. He is not a one-time Savior who gave you salvation back when you first trusted Him. He is not a two-time Savior who gave you salvation back when you trusted Him and will one day return to bring you to glory. He is an all-the-time Savior who has joined His sufferings with our sufferings, who has joined Himself with us in our sufferings, such that suffering transforms us into His glorious likeness so that we'll finally be fit for dwelling with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. That will be the day when our filling up what is lacking in His afflictions will be complete and our afflictions will come to their goal and their end point because He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and the new will come in all of its glorious fullness. May the church of the Lord Jesus Christ fill up what is lacking in his afflictions, so that we can dwell with him in heavenly joys and glory.